Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome back to The Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators in software development. I'm Tim Smith, senior producer around these parts. Today, we bring you a special episode with three great conversations Adam and Jared had at OzCon. They talk with Camille Eddy about recognizing biases in AI, Jerome Hardaway about the work he's doing to prepare veterans for jobs in software, and Abby Kubanak-Mays about the work she's doing at Mozilla for Open Science. So we're joined by Camille Eddy with Girl STEM Stars. Camille, you opened up OzCon this morning talking about cultural bias in AI, how we recognize it, how we deal with it. Just give us a, just a quick synopsis, a rerun. Don't go through the whole thing of your keynote, what you're here to talk about. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, happy to be here. And this morning, I got to talk a little bit about uh, how we reflect on our own biases and how that is propagated into the technology that we produce. Um, the importance of recognizing that AI has made uh, mistakes in the past based on those biases, based on things that it can't possibly know not to do, like faux pas, like um, categorizing black people as gorillas. That's a really bad thing, right? Really bad, right? Yeah. Um, so it, talking about those as mistakes in the past, biases, but that we can't fix them without reflecting on those. And then different things like explainable AI is seeking to come in and understand why algorithms make decisions that they make. And the importance of having more technology like that prevalent in the future of machine learning and AI in general. We'll definitely dive into those. Let's hear a little bit about your story, uh, how you came to be key- keynoting in OzCon. Right. Um, yeah. So I have been able, a really fortunate student, really, to be able to go about and do a lot of different things. So I started in Idaho. That's where I'm getting my bachelor's degree. Um, and when I was in Idaho, I, of course, dealt with a lot of biases. I'm African-American, so one of the very few black people there. Um, And it changed my story a little bit and how I dealt with the people around me um, and also what kind of opportunities I got. So as soon as I kind of came into that understanding that, um, you know, life isn't the same, you know, no matter how much you want it to be, and we all have our own biases, I started thinking about that more and I was given the opportunity to actually talk about my experience. 
from that talk, like one champion in one place at my school, um, someone invited me to go to San Francisco and talk. Okay. And that's where the talk kind of evolved. That was about a year ago, maybe over a year ago. Um, and uh, so then I just kept going because I have a mantra as a student. And my mantra is there's three rules. Um, you like uh, say yes to every new opportunity. Okay. You don't okay. do anything twice. And then you always make your accomplishments visible. And so through that, I said yes to speaking in San Francisco, <laughs> though I've never been in San Francisco. Um, I was okay with that. And then I also, you know, make sure I keep it changing. So now yeah. I'm at OSCON, which is just how it happened. Yeah. What was the last one again? The last one? The last point? Oh, make my accomplishments visible. Make okay. them visible. Well, I'm happy and sad about this mantra. I'm happy because you said yes to us. Yeah. But I'm sad because now this is the last time we're going to talk uh, to you. That's right. You can't we, do we just have to talk about something else next that was, time. Uh, I was going to disagree as well because I was like, you know, you have to come back. Uh, yeah. You have to come back. I can do something else. Okay, yeah. so, that, so you'll break with that rule. That's the loose rule. That's role. right. Oh, uh, well, I'll well, come back in. New conversation. Yeah, new conversation well, with new y'all. New conversation. Easy. Okay, yes. gotcha. <laughs> Interesting. So one thing that you mentioned uh, this morning is about how representation matters and how you saw, well, just tell the story about the the African-American yeah. uh, astronaut. Sure. So when I was 12, um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do because that's what 12-year-olds do. Um, and I was homeschooled, and my mom gave us a lesson at some point about Mae Jemison, who's the first female astronaut for NASA. Um, and I thought that was dope. But when she gave me the lesson of dope. the first black female astronaut at NASA, Mae Jemison, that's when I connected and said, oh, I actually identify with her, and I want to be an astronaut. Right. So um, having that representation with someone who directly and strongly identifies with me yeah. made a difference in my choices. So from there, my mom was like, okay, so you're going to have to do your own research. What do you have to do to become an astronaut? And that's where I saw that to become an astronaut, you have to be a scientist, a doctor, or an engineer. And I chose engineering because I felt like that fit the best. And then eventually went up at Idaho, and I got some informational lessons, like in high school, did space camp, which is really cool. And I was like, I'm really into this. Right. And that's how I settled on engineering. Cool. So that brought you to engineering. (laughs) Is the the dream alive, the astronaut dream, or is it just you settled into engineering? Yeah, no. uh, So the thing about being an astronaut is you can't become an astronaut when you're like 20. Because you have to become the best in your field. So I feel like I'm on the way to becoming an okay. astronaut, but it's not going to happen until I'm, like, way older. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm young 20s now. <laughs> Can you reflect maybe on some experiences you've had where representation was there and not there for you? And, like, so how you felt when representation wasn't present, how did you feel about maybe exploring a role or being invited? Sure. And maybe the flip side of both of those. Yeah. So the thing about people like Mae Jemison, who's the first black female astronaut, she did a first, right? Um, and so in Idaho, I did a first as well. So like I was the first um, black female student to lead my students' NASA research team. Um, but one of the things that was different there is I had a lot of amazing mentors. Other people who did first, like Barbara Morgan was my mentor while I was in Idaho. She's the first female teacher to space. Um, she was a former astronaut as well. Um, but I didn't have any other um, black females to be like my mentors. People who had gone before me and said, oh, I see how your journey is being different than everyone else around you. And this is why and this is how you deal with it. So um, I was able to push through that, right? I was a NASA research first research student, um, did undergraduate research, led the team, which was, again, a first. Um, And uh, it was hard in a way that 
like it's hard to have certain conversations with people. You know, you get in those icky conversations about, you know, I don't understand why you just blew up at me in the middle of the room and didn't see the fact that you didn't blow up at anybody else. But mm-hmm. it was when I spoke that you blew up. Uh, little things like that that are just like more um, cultural yeah. that you wouldn't necessarily question. Um, but they add but, up over time. But it, ha- it adds up over time. Um, also, yeah, adding up in a way it's like, there are other questions like, where do you come from? What country are you from? Things that other you that they don't realize. And they don't also don't realize that it happens to me like 10 times a day. So it's like, yeah, you might think you're the first one to ask me this, but I get this all the time. Right. So uh, just paying attention to little things that other you and understanding my relation to that. And then when I came and did some internships out of the state, I did find black female mentors. And they helped me just kind of realize like I'm not the only one. I'm not crazy. And that there are other ways to like help encourage the conversation. Oh. Not being crazy is pretty important. Yeah, it's <laughs> I would really say, important right? for your I'm always looking for somebody to validate my feelings to some degree. Like, am I, am crazy? I crazy? I asked Jared this it's whole time. Asked me Dude, that am I time. crazy? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I don't always say no. Uh, well, let's get back to the to the topic at hand, which is the cultural bias uh, or biases in general in AI. This is something that we've we discussed a handful of times because we focus on these things for practical AI. But uh, you know, machine machine learning specifically, because you're training a computer by example, right? With here is a set of data. Um, I've heard them described machine learning as actual. I've heard it described as a bag of bias. Like you're basically taking everything that you gather and say, right. here, learn this. And then I'm going to reuse the results that you're learning based on. And so it, per- it perpetuates a history. It's very perspective-driven, right? Right. What you feed it is a perspective. It's, right. A, right. it's essentially its own bubble, so, so I guess to speak. The, the question becomes, like, how do we fight that? How do we deal with that? Like, what's, the, what's your take on yeah. that topic? I, so I think part of the problem is there's humans in the loop, right? So we're we're basically helping AI codify our experiences and then represent that again. Right. Um, but sometimes what happens, like at, we as humans, we have feedback all the time. We'll butt up against something, say something wrong, and then we'll like, oh, that was wrong. I need to correct that. Um, but AI and machine learning doesn't always have that feedback in the loop. So it's really important to figure out a way, and there are different ways to do it, to provide feedback. Um, I know Microsoft and Facebook have come out with their own bias toolkits for their okay. artificial intelligence um, that they said that was very important to them to add. The other thing I like to talk about is explainable AI, so, or XAI, um, which seeks to understand why an algorithm makes the decisions it makes. So instead of having AI be a black box, um, it becomes more transparent. And so another place to go look in the web for ideas around understanding why the biases exist and how to like look at them is to look at the idea of transparency in AI. I see. So that means displaying to the end user why, like, let's say recommendation engines for an example, because that's one place that we see machine learning applied a lot. You know, why this particular thing is being recommended to me by Amazon because it's based on a model and it will actually just say based on this, this, and this. Is Mm -hmm. that what you're saying? Yeah, or let's do another one too. That's a good example. So another similar example is Facebook. Why do I see what's in my Facebook feed? Is it because someone liked it? Is it because someone I know commented on it? Is it because I've liked on this thing before? Is it because somewhere back in the day I liked this particular page and maybe I want to unlike it? Or is it because it's based on my geographic location? Google also does this. They have like 21 or more different points that they look at. When you do a search, they say, where are you located? What have you searched before? What kind of things have you bought? 
what are these tags and where are they coming from? That's yeah. a good. And it's not just the end user that needs to know this. It's also the developer, right? So the develop. I, I think Facebook is a really good example of this again because the developers have some of those tools and information. They just don't let us see it, which you know is up to them. Yeah. But to release some more of those tools that have more transparency, right. I think would help bring us along a little bit more. From an end user perspective, I can say that I can trust AI more if I know the transparency point of it. Like, yeah. if I know why you're telling me this is important to me, that I can confirm whether that's true or not and help it even shape its future recommendations for me. Because if it's inaccurate, I want it to know. Yeah. Right? And so, if everybody's can can somehow influence that, are you advocating for that? Or how do we shape those kinds of biases inside of AI in that, in that case? Yeah. I think one of the things to think about is this conversation has been happening for a long time. It's just now coming into prevalence, right? right? And this is kind of what happens when you engineer products uh, in a box, basically. Like when you engineer in one lab. In a research lab. Yeah, when you engineer in a research lab. With perfect conditions. One set of scientists or engineers yeah. are like, oh, this is great. This works for us. This helps our narrative. We, our lives can work well with this. Um, so that's another point that I make in my talk is not only have we not been having everyone in the room when we're developing it. We don't have a lot of users in the room, different users, like to test this product. And then on top of that, the whole world isn't online yet. Like there's a large groups of population of human beings in other parts of the world that don't have the access to the internet that we have. And if we're making all these decisions based off press products or think conversations we're seeing online, we actually are missing a big part of that conversation because people, not everyone's online. So it's yeah, so it's about being transparent, being able to see those ideas and being able to control it, but then also about continuing to get that conversation pushed deeper ingrained into yeah. our processes of how we develop our technology. Who's in control of this transparency? Like, who are the gatekeepers of the, the black box being transparent? It's literally every single person that walks into a startup, that founds a company, like the non-technical founders, too. Like, they're all involved in those conversations. It's not... We're developing, especially we're at an open source conference, right? We're developing these things and building on top of it, on top of it, and we're creating the legacy technology of the future. So literally, these should be the conversations we're having the first time we put up an idea on the whiteboard. Like, okay, who's not at the table? Who do we see not represented? It's really the individual people. I mean, Larry Page, Sergey, uh, even Tim O'Reilly, they were all individuals at one point looking at their business models, looking at their ideas. And so it's on that level. If you seek or aspire to be any type of entrepreneur, leader, uh, manager, uh, just someone in the room engineering a piece of code, you should be having this conversation or thinking about it or getting more people to talk about it with So you. what's the practical way to make it transparent then? Aside from talking, like, it yeah. could be at the table, but how do you actually implement transparency? So a couple of different things, like you have the explainable AI, so looking at making sure that you're making it visible to other people. Right? So reversing or what would it be called? Just turning it inside out, your development process. So we're watching Facebook do this now, right? We're watching them see like, this ad is paid for by, that's a really good example, really small, but it's moving in the right direction. Um, Another version would be uh, like, when I go on my Twitter, I look at my Twitter analytics. Um, I can see who's liking my posts, who's commenting on it, and also the impression footprint that it has. So maybe open that up a little bit more, like what? Just a little bit more, like yeah. past just the idea of impressions. I think I think to get that done, 
you have to be able to convince the people who are making the product or the business decisions or be one of those people that this is valuable, this is worth their effort. And um, so that starts with conversations, that starts Mm -hmm. with grassroots efforts. And also a reflection that we haven't done it yet. We haven't done half of the work that's necessary yet. Not not just to define the problem, but to create products, especially out-of-the-box products, right? They're not existing yet, except for those couple of toolkits that I mentioned that don't necessarily serve all of the ideas I'm talking about from Microsoft and Facebook. Right. Um, We haven't been talking about this in an actionable way long enough. And so, and really, at the end of the day, I'm a mechanical engineer, right? I'm here to, like, help dip people's toes in the waters, and hopefully, um, as we start talking about it more, there's really cool books like the Algorithms of Oppression that really lays it out. It lays out that um, case use um, about, like, why it would be helpful to your business model to do it. Yeah. Um, and then also just more conversations with people who are using it and not finding a great experience. One great example, I, w- I go back to this all the time, is Instagram ads specifically and the, the visceral reaction that Instagram users have had to those ads, so much so that people believe that, f- that Instagram slash Facebook is listening to their conversations because the ads are getting good enough to where they will suggest something to you that you don't think you've Google searched, you don't think you put it in Amazon, you think you're just talking about it with your friend or your significant other, and all of a sudden they're advertising it to you and you have no idea why. And so people are convinced that Facebook is listening to them, like actually turning on the microphone. In fact, there was a great reply all episode all about that, about whether or not it's actually happening. And it's not, they're not doing that, but they're applying AI and different other fuzzy techniques in order to make their ads so good they're getting very, very well targeted that it creeps you out yep. because you don't know how they came to that distinction. Now, if I go to Instagram's head of marketing and say, you know, your ads are actually making people despise you and your advertisers because they're so creepy. But if you were transparent about how you came to those conclusions, right? If here's your ad and I think, ooh, how do they know I even We listen to your conversation. Toothpaste, right? <laughs> yeah, we got this because we're listening to you. No, if they actually said this was, you know, this ad is based on these things that we know about you. Right. Then I would look at that and say, oh, okay, that all That's makes sense. That's my point. I could appreciate you serving me in that way. Like, if it was actually, like, I should be interested in that. But it right. might also creep me out, like, stop knowing that stuff about me. Right. Maybe you can opt out. But my point is, like, that's the business case in that particular yeah. sense. It's like, your ads will be more effective with the transparency added. Yeah. Because they're actually being counteractive in their current form. Yeah, I think so, too. I think the transparency piece is a, is it's huge. a huge component. I mean, Netflix does this somewhat well. We, read it, we recommended this because you Based watched because X. Because you liked this or because you watched and then So they just give me one title, but I know who was in it, you know, what the subject matter was, what genre of movie was it, you know, what was its PG rating, was it R, PG-13, whatever. I can deduce all those things myself and do my own research because I got at least the one thing they, they tracked me on to recommend this. That's why you never let your kids watch on your profile. That's true. Because they'll watch one episode of a cartoon and then Netflix will be like, Pop oh, you must control. love <laughs> cartoons. And then all the recommendations yeah. are like kids' shows. What's also interesting is the, is the use of just an IP address and not a profile because there's things that happen in a household or behind one single IP that doesn't reflect every person behind that IP. That's true. You know, so I may go and search Overstock or some some brand for a new couch or something, some sort of decoration, and it may be a present for my wife. And now she may know because she's getting advertised from her favorite brands or something like that. Like, it's kind of revealing. So, like, 
I want my secrets to be my secrets so I can <laughs> reveal them on my own terms. You know what I yeah. mean? No, the way you could probably attack that directly is to start looking at recommender engines. That's I think it's what it's called, recommender yeah. algorithms, and being like, okay, this recommender algorithm, I'm going to go back to see what its training model looks like, right. go back and read the papers, and then I'm going to like present a, a really specific argument <laughs> to yeah. whoever made that. Is there a case where the recommender engine, as you say, is deemed somewhat proprietary, considering maybe the thought leadership of like, here's what we can connect to make assumptions? Yeah. Um, think sure. of Facebook as a big recommender engine. That stuff is definitely proprietary. That's why we can't see it. That's part of the problem. That's the wall there. Yeah. Is It's proprietary. Um, we can't tell you. We don't want to tell you. And therefore, you don't have the levers. So if it was built on a more open source platform, then we probably would be able to go in there and finagle with it. But we got to, so in, in that case, we have to switch it, make it inside out and say, hey, now we really do want these. Make the business case to the people, yeah. holler, scream, shout, pull hair, do all those things. Open source for the win. Yes. So tell us uh, what's next for you. Where are you, where are you headed next? Uh, well, like my main goal is to finish school <laughs> um, so I can get out. Uh, I, I love learning, but I don't like academics, so I'm really excited to finish. <laughs> what's, uh, what's the distinction there? Yeah, uh, so, The distinction is being in the world world. I mean, I took a gap year in the middle of my um, academics just because I felt like I needed it, and it has taught me a lot about... Um, where engineering's going, where uh, machine learning's going, and um, even me at this conference, you know, I was able to do that because I was on the break and I was getting involved and being aware of the conversations being had. So, I don't know. Uh, I feel like I'm probably trying to grow up too early, but yeah, I'm definitely trying to get out of school soon. And then, um, other than that, I've been writing a lot and just um, making community and finding uh, stakeholders or stakeholders slash champions is what I should say. Champions, people who are also on the same path and talking. So I'm just trying to create conversations and I think that's really important. What was some of the things you did on your gap year to kind of feed into that insight? Okay. Yes. Because I'm sure there's somebody listening thinking, hey, I, I should probably do that. What should yeah. I do? So I volunteered a lot. Um, uh, for example, Girl Sim Stars was one of the places I volunteered. Um, I'm on their board and I help organize groups of girls from like six to seven girls between middle school and high school ages and they went on tech days at companies and I would bring them to Google and we'd have a whole tech day and they learn about coding. Some of them was the first time they had ever code. Um, similarly, I did a cybersecurity camp just uh, last weekend um, at Berkeley where it was also for middle school to high school kids. Um, spent 20 hours a day with them. Maybe not with them, but getting them ready, getting the materials ready, teaching them cybersecurity for the first time. They heard from cybersecurity professionals and as well as um, women in cybersecurity. Um, so doing a lot of, but in that time, you know, the people you bring in and talk to these kids are the people I'm networking with. You know, I'm rubbing elbows with some really cool people. Um, and then also just um, learning more. Um, so right now I'm working on autonomous cars, which is completely different from the other robots I was doing in the past. So learning about a whole new system of technology and being aware of how it's coming into the conversation and the importance there, because that's a whole other big conversation. Yeah. Um, immersion is just really helpful, which I can't necessarily do in academics because you're doing a lot of different Well, you're classes. immersed in academics. Yeah, immersed <laughs> in academics is not really what I want to be, so yeah. I'm really looking forward to finishing up and getting back to being immersed in these other really cool technologies that are popping up. So if you have any young girls out there listening to the show or anybody that 
would benefit from STEM, uh, Girl STEM Stars, is that mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Uh, what's, the step, what's the first step to getting involved, either yeah. as a mentor or somebody to, to actually attend? Sure. Yeah, and, and this goes for not just Girl STEM Stars, but if you're interested in any type of um, organizing or volunteering across the country, just send me a ping on Twitter um, at N-I-K-K-Y-M-I-L-L, Nikki Mill. And then, um, yeah, and girlstemstars.org is also open. Um, but yeah, if you really want to volunteer, we could totally use you. And yeah, just come down and send me a ping. Nice. Cool. This is a blast. Thanks, Camille. Thank you, Thank Camille. You. Pleasure. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a cloud computing platform built with simplicity at the forefront. So managing infrastructure is easy, whether you're a business running one single virtual machine or 10,000. DigitalOcean gets out of your way so teams can build, deploy, and scale cloud apps faster and more efficiently. Join the ranks of Docker, GitLab, Slack, HashiCorp, WeWork, Fastly, and more. Enjoy simple, predictable pricing. Sign up, deploy your app in seconds. Head to do.co slash changelog, and our listeners get a free $100 credit to spend in your first 60 days. Try it free. Once again, head to do.co slash changelog. Drum, you uh, you do some pretty cool stuff for veterans, man. Roger that. Well, thank you. I don't know if I do cool things for veterans. I feel like it's important work, uh, but thanks nonetheless. So what exactly do you do? What we do is at Vetsu Code, we teach veterans how to program. We do this remotely, 100% remote, and we focus solely on open source technologies. So React, JavaScript, uh, Node.js, those are the main points of education um, while going deep dive, deep dive in computer science fundamentals. So is this why they're still in active duty? Or are they in National Guard, Reserve? They, what's their engagement currently with the military? We usually don't care. We focus on the type of, like, we look for the type of veteran that's looking for a job. So the average, um, average veteran that comes to our program is within a year uh, from leaving service or within six months of being out. And by doing that, we, uh, we can you know, we focus on people who are more serious versus those who are, you know, maybe looking for a hobby. Right. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm spending 14, well, practically 26 weeks out of my life educating. So I want to make sure that people who are um, getting the fruits of this labor are serious about it. Yeah, legit. I was just thinking, uh, having ETS myself out of the military at one point, all the process they have, you know, yeah. as you leave, all the different briefings you got to do and just all the ceremony involved in exiting the military in an honorable status, that that would be a great time to mention, hey, there's Vetsu code, and as you exit, as you look to, to new opportunities, there's this opportunity for you. In my opinion, like I said, I'm not an expert, um, I think it's well before that. Like, if you look at how the current, especially when in the tech hiring process and the current stacks and situations we're in, you need to be thinking, if you're going to 
I actually look at technology as a viable um, sector to transition in. You need to be focusing within that like six months to a year yeah. before you hmm. get out. Simply off the fact that you know it'll take you three or four months just in building relationships and you know making sure your portfolio is right, your GitHub's correct, uh, you're building uh, relationships in your community based upon where you want to live, where you want to move. You have you've like dwindled down all of the recruiter suit that you're gonna get and find actually the good two or three recruiters that you are actually going to focus on knowing your strengths and your weaknesses and building that relationship with them. So I would argue a year to six months yeah. before you hit that transition bu- huh. button. Yeah. It's a tough position in any soldier's life, regardless of like what they did at their service. It could have been a three or four engagement. They could have been deployed. They could have just been on a base. Either way, transitioning out of and back into civilian life once you've been through the process of being in the military is a Yes, it's it, an experience, nonetheless. <laughs> yes, it's hard. Like it doesn't matter if you did four years or twenty years. That transition from that community to back into civilian life is a uh, is shocking, to say the least. Is this a free program for veterans? How does it work? What's oh, yes. the cost? I don't charge. We don't charge veterans a dime. Like it's all about finding the veterans that have the most promise. And like usually, the average veteran that comes to our program, they're stuck. They have been trying to learn how to code. They've hit a brick wall. Like There's so much stuff on the Internet, they don't know which direction to go, and that's our job. We not only point them in the right directions, we provide a curriculum for them to go through. When they get, um, As they get more advanced, we uh, supply a mentor, and these are the processes that we do, and then we start helping them with the process of prepping for your uh, job, helping with like interview prep, resume, looking at your portfolio, looking at your GitHub, uh, looking at your LinkedIn, looking at how you present yourself when it comes to your resume, all of these um, things that come into play. And we make sure that everybody who's telling you advice, they've walked that road. Like, you know, I'm at CBS, our our primary CTO. He is at, uh, he's at USAA. And then we have our CDO who he's, um, He's at USA Today, and these guys, you know, we're all people at big companies, so we take that time and like, yo, this is what you need to do. This is what we're seeing. This is how we would change like this. You know, always giving that, you know, that keeping that feedback loop open. Yeah. What's the lifespan of that relationship? <laughs> it, it varies. On average, it is, we do 14 weeks, so I would say at least half a year to a year, veterans are staying in contact. We have some veterans that they, since 2014, they are always in contact. They're forever fans. Like, it's really, uh, it's really weird. Like, well, you, you know, know if you help them get a job, I mean. Yeah, and it's really, it's really cool because, like, it's my way of finding the type of community that you know, creating the type of community I want. I like people who are goofy and serious. Like, I like the work hard, play hard types. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, we are going to finish this project, but, you know, I want to play Cars Humanity after this, too. Like, we have a hard deadline for Cars and Humanity. Let's, let's go. So, like, that is, you know, these are the type of veterans that, that, that you know, I find. Like, yeah. Oh. How do you, you mentioned, like, finding the ones that are serious yeah. How do you judge that? How do you um, formalize um, that? Co- copy that. We have a three-prong process. It went from two to three. Um, primary phase is we put everybody in the Facebook group. We have the pre-work on GitHub so they can look at the pre-work on the README and go through this. And until you do, they finish uh, that pre-work, they don't get an interview. Those who complete the pre-work, then they get an interview. The first phase interview is always with me. I want to make sure everybody that wants to be in Vetsu Code and has, you know, done their uh, prerequisites, see, talks to me face-to-face, like, you know, let's go ahead and, you know, zoom it up, chat, and so I can get a feel for you and tell you this is why we do I want to find... I treat... I treat programming like um, people treat boxing. If you could do anything else and make money, 
you should do it because I'm like programming is a forever job. You're never going to stop learning. You're never going to know it all. Like you're going to be the stupidest person in the room at least once a week. <laughs> so if you have an ego, you Check might not like this. Yeah. Door, yeah. You might, you know, if you uh, if you're one of those guys that think you know they're like a college type, you know, you're going to go to college, get this degree, and then you're going to stop. This it's isn't for like you. Yeah. Like this is not your like this is not your bag. So like that's the first thing. Then after that, we have a technical interview or another person. That way, there is no bias. Uh, so I, I don't handle all the interview phases either. Sure. So I have a technical phase where uh, Noel he goes through their GitHub. He starts asking questions. Starts asking, seeing where they're at and you know where they are on the technical things. What things they've done outside of us because we're always sharing other things. Like that's the real gotcha. We want to see if you're hungry. Like it's just I like I said, if you program like boxing, you have to be hungry for it. You have to want it. This is an analogy I've never heard. If you, you I as a person has been military box and does programming. Yeah. Like boxing is my spare time thing. Like to do. Right. It'll release stress like that I see the you like see the parallels I see the parallels all the time like you know you have to be hungry you have to want it you have to show up every day there's never like there's never a day that if you oh a time oh I've achieved it all because there's always somebody right behind you who's going to know just as much as you absolutely like, it's like programming and boxing it's literally the same You're, you can't complacency kills that's a military word there for you. <laughs> Complacency yeah. kills. Yeah, for sure. It's an interesting focus, actually, on veterans. I mean, what do you what do you see? I guess maybe you're kind of biased because you've been through the military, but I'm thinking like how this might be for non-military to military. You know, the, the mindset of the person, the change there. Can you can you maybe describe maybe some of the mindset of a Roger that, someone who's uh, been through the military, served the country. Well, through like, the training. For, yes. First and foremost, I am not one of those veterans that had like a technical job in the military. I was security forces. I carried an M4 carbine and a 9mm to work every day. I nothing about a computer in my job at all. So that's the first thing I let people know. Like, you know, you're talking to one of those veterans that didn't fit the criteria. Uh, secondly, everything that we do in the military these days are a lot of procedures that you guys do, uh, that we do on the tech side. They're just different names. You guys have Agile. We have, in the military, there's rapid deployment pro- procedures. Uh, you guys, we have components. We have fire teams. The fire team is nothing but a component of an entire squad. Sure. So, like, these are, like, these are practices that are already ingrained in the military that is also ingrained in software. Uh, your, the process of being able to, like, read boring, dry, death by PowerPoint style documentation. That is the first thing you learn in the military is how to, you know, death by PowerPoint. Oh my goodness, this is a thousand pages of useless junk that I'm going to be tested on. <laughs> like, oh, programming, just like that. So, a thousand pages of useless junk. <laughs> programming. Well, so, they get ranked. You do have to study some interesting things. You yeah. got to go before boards. You got to come presented. Yes. But it comes with knowledge, and that knowledge is, is gained by you, not by exactly. somebody handing it to you. You got to you got to want it. It's part it. of the boxing thing. It's, you got to chase it. Same way with the military. Uh, on-the-job training, um, learning by doing. That's how you learn in the military. You, yeah. All right, you OJT. go through basic. Yeah, OJT. You go through basic, then you turn around, and then you go to your training school, and then they send you to your base, and then your base teaches you how to do it the way they want to do So you come in with a base set of skills to meet their metric, meet the requirement. Then they're like, all right, you keep this, keep this, keep this, throw this away, keep this, keep this, don't like that, keep this, we might keep that. And then that same way when you go to your first company. Oh, you know, you do this, do this, do this. That's cool. Do this. I don't like that. We're not going to do it that way. And, you know, pretty much that's how start being like the first week of your of, your, of a software job. Like yep. look at things you have, see what they like, tell you what they're going to fire, see, tell you what they're going to add, and then move on. 
So you're, uh, how do I say this? What hooked you about software? I mean, you also like boxing, but the way that you're describing these things, they're very like harsh, hard, difficult. But I like it because it's harsh and hard and okay. difficult. That's, like, that's the best like, part. Like I'm, you know, I like I mean, the challenge. I guess Daniel Cromera says it best. He's a current UFC like lightweight and heavy, uh, heavy light heavyweight and heavyweight champion. He says, "Embrace the suck," and that's like something from like you hear like on the wrestling mats, like yeah, NCAA, yeah. like all these guys, D1 guys. They say that embrace the suck, and that's what it is. Like I'm embracing the suck of software for the reward that it gives. Like you, you know, being able to have the type of lifestyle I want, be able to meet crazy cool people. There are people that I know today that like four years ago I was like in awe of like I've turned my heroes into my peers. That is cray. Like, you know, <laughs> there's nothing, you can't put a price on that type right. of experience. And that's, you know, that's what helps me get up at 0, 0430 in the morning and, you know, start getting, focusing on making myself a better person. Yeah. Like, Embrace the sucker reminds me of uh, a saying or a distinction that I've heard lots of times is like there's good suck and there's bad suck. Right? And like this is the good suck, and that's when you gotta embrace it. Like, yeah, this is hard, this is harsh, this is this yeah. sucks. Yeah. But you know what's at the end of the road is good. And yeah. so and there's other what, stuff that sucks that it's just like just get that out of your life. And there, and that's what like the strength of military life. If you've ever deployed, you know, if you've never heard like, you know, hurry up and wait, you've been in that world where, oh, you're waiting for six hours and somebody comes out like, hey, we gotta hurry up and knock this out. I'm like, really? We gotta move in fifteen minutes, we have to move all we gotta move forty people in fifteen minutes. We've been here six hours, you didn't say anything <laughs> to us, but now it's fifteen minutes, we have to move everybody. That's okay, like, that's cool. Um, embracing the suck, that is like military life. You ever been on deployment? It's like, yeah, you have to embrace the suck. Like, all right, it sucks. It's 120 <laughs> degrees out here, and everybody hates us. But, you know, I'm going to go home soon, so uh, we're just going to embrace the suck gosh. and then move on. <laughs> I've heard another one, too. It's uh, good training. Yeah. Anytime you've done something, you're like, that was terrible. Why do we do that? Good training. Yeah. Just get over it. Good training. <laughs> yeah, it was training. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's something we were saying recently about, you know, decisions that we've made with ChangeLogger and business, and it's like you go down a path, and you realize it's the wrong path. And maybe you're six months down the road and you're like, well, we got to go back to where we were. And it's like, well, that sucked. That was a waste of time, money, and effort. And then we always say, well, now we know. Education. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's just like, good how education. Could we have good learned experience. that otherwise. That's good training. It's good training. I like that. <laughs> it's good training. Good training. One thing I like about this is I'm learning lots of cool sayings. <laughs> oh, I have a million militarisms. Give me some. Uh, give me some other ones. Come on. I don't know. Like I don't know what's PG. What's like? You know, it's keep in the it moment. Family friendly. Keep it family yeah, friendly. Yeah, like I said, like I'm trying to keep it. Like, uh, you share me the other ones later. Yeah. See, now I'm brain farting them. Like <laughs> it happens right. in the moment. Like oh, there you go. Bam. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, maybe those active duty military men and women who are out there serving our country or they're transitioned out and they're looking for that opportunity. They're listening to this podcast or somebody who knows one yeah. is listening to this podcast. How do they reach out? What's the first step? Well, the first step is always uh, go through Vetsuko. We have our application form on there. And then once you apply, I'll, I'll Pretty much I always email them, ask them to have a Facebook group. Some people just go straight to the Facebook group, but I'll always email them personally and say, hey, do you have Facebook? Here's our Facebook group. Join it so we can start the application process with you. They are, they're in there with the pre-work, and they're talking to other veterans. You know, it's a way to make sure that everybody is on, like, has a fair metric that we can uh, at least start off of. And not only that, it's a way for them to meet other people who are interested in this stuff. Like, you know, if you're, it's better to embrace the suck with a group of people than to embrace it, you 
you know, by, by yourself. yourself. Why, yeah. 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 Misery loves company. That's why everybody misses the military days. Oh, those <laughs> were the good old days. No, they weren't, but you made some good friends because... They were the best, worst days. Yeah, they're like, no, that Sounds was... like high school. I yeah, miss them. Like, they were it's terrible. Like freshman year in high school. Right. Like, that's how your entire military career is, like huh. freshman year in high school. Yeah. Everybody wants to kick your butt. It's like, it's awful. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. And you get out and you're like, remember how good that oh, was? Yeah, man, I miss those days. <laughs> I miss those days. <laughs> oh, man. So how many people have you put through this program? Right now, we've done over 100 people, gotten jobs in 14 states. Uh, we've had people who are working here. People are working in uh, Seattle. We actually just had a veteran. Started two weeks ago in Microsoft. So, like, that was pretty cool. Awesome. Like, this is deal. our first cohort that we've gotten 100% success rate. I was going to ask what your placement rate is. Yeah. Usually, it's around 95 97%. That's amazing. But that's because we're very... We're hyper-focused. Yeah. yeah. Very hyper-focused. And, you know, the way I look at it is like, listen, you're not paying for this, so and I have the real-world experience, so listen to me so I can help you or don't listen to me yeah. and don't be around. Hit the like, road. That's, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I'm very— don't waste my time. People are very—like, peop, people don't really like that style, but I'm like, I'm doing this because I, rem I remember— every day how hard it was for the transition so I'm here to make your transition easy so you don't have to go through what I went through right was there somebody there for you like no the no. transition process when I got out of the military was trash on top of trash on top of trash it was like isolating okay. I would say my experience was isolating yeah no, well the military transitions to help you get out, get you off their books it's, the military transition isn't about you, you like, acclimate into civilian society. It's Not like, all. all right, well, you don't want to be a part of our team anymore. Bye. Like, I don't know. Like, it's also straight up by Felicia type move. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> like, okay. Okay. All now right. What? Okay. What do you do? So yeah. you have to figure out these so things. So weird, too, going back into civilian life, man. Yeah, it is. Because just a whole dichotomy. We can get in. That's a whole podcast. Can you get into that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what but, about the placements, people? Like, uh, if we got people listening to this podcast that are places where they're looking for good programmers, how do they reach out to the is there a direct there's a contact form on Vesuco. You can just fill that out. Everything goes into our chat ops. Um, my phone is buzzing right now because people are hitting me up. So, <laughs> uh, like, pretty much in real time on, like, Slack, and they're applying. So, basically what happens is, you know, you go to the contact form, you fill it out, I'll reach out to you, and we'll start conversations. We've had, well, like... Well, I mean, for those... Uh, companies, The companies, right? yeah. 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 Same, same deal? Same yeah, deal. same okay. deal. Like, we start the conversation because I want to make sure you're a good fit. We've had companies come in and then they're like yeah we love what you're doing we have colleagues who have hired your people would you mind doing java and i'm like no mm. you don't understand how hard it is if i'm not actually there in front of that veteran to be able to get their machine prepped to do java and you know java spring boot well i'm like that is you know you have to control the install fest that's why we chose javascript you know the ease of use of being able to get that veteran from being you know not having a dev environment to having a dev environment is like super easy in JavaScript yeah. versus, you know, more advanced, uh, oh, not more than more stable uh, languages. So it's like, okay, it's very difficult to do that. So let's work on this. And then as they get interest, they'll be able to have this base of knowledge where they can build on it. We had a veteran right now just... Uh, he last week started his first day at work at uh, J.P. Morgan as Angular and Java Spring Boot um, developer. We don't teach Angular. We don't teach Java Spring Boot. But he was able to get that job because of the deep knowledge base that he got with us and then being able to go and venture out on his spare time outside of class um, with Java. And I was like, all right, that's awesome. I don't care what you do as long as you're, do you're programming. Mm -hmm. like, cool. Keep yeah. building. 
never stop, dudes. Like, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is cool. another thing that programming has in common with boxing. You stop for a week and you pick it back up, you will feel it. So, <laughs> got to do it every day. Yep. Anything else to share, Jerome? Uh, follow Vetsucode on Twitter if you're looking for uh, any good React developers, any good JavaScript engineers. Uh, reach out to us. I am always looking for people who like to hire good people. Cool. It's good seeing you, man. Thank you. Thanks. Right. Thank you. So I have some pretty awesome news to share. We are now partnered with Algolia. If you've ever searched Hacker News, Teespring, Medium, Twitch, or even Product Hunt, then you've experienced the results of Algolia's search API. And as we expand our content, we knew that one day we'd have to either roll our own search solution on top of Postgres, or we could partner up with Algolia. And I'm happy to report that phase one of our search is now powered by Algolia. We're able to fine-tune our indexing, gain insights from search patterns and analytics. We can create custom query rules to influence ranking behavior, as well as improve our search experience by adding synonyms and alternative correction to queries. Sure, we could build search ourselves, but that would mean we would be busy doing that instead of shipping shows like you're listening to right now. Huge thanks to our friends at Algolia for working with us. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free or learn more by heading to algolia.com. And by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. Check them out at gocd.org or on GitHub at github.com slash gocd. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end with no problem. They support Kubernetes and modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's free to use, and they have professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. So we're joined by Abby Kupanak Mays, working open practice lead at the Mozilla Foundation. That's a mouthful. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Sounds like an important thing. Tell us what that means. Yeah, it means um, I care a lot about how to work open, working openly, and about how to do that past just open source. So doing that in open science projects with the ah. civic tech, with government. Are you writing curriculum? How do you do that openly? So just helping people do that. Okay. So yeah. it's not just open source, but it yeah. includes open source. It does include open source, and my background's coming from open source. Okay. But yeah. also open science. Yeah. Documentation. Yeah. Okay. Where'd you get, how'd you get into that, you know, and, and how'd you end up at Mozilla doing this work? Yeah. Um, I actually have a background in bioinformatics, which is computer science applied to biology. Um, so I was writing software for scientists at this cancer research institute. And the longer I was in academia, the more often you notice how people maybe fudge their data a little bit or hide their data sets. Like to, to come up with certain results? Yeah, just so that they can get that really cool result so that it gets published in nature and their oh. career goes. And that's just how you get forward in science. That stinks. It does. And <laughs> I, that's when I really got into open science. Um, it's like, well, we really should be doing this so we can have the best innovations, so that we can help more people. Okay. Yeah. What percentage of closed science or you know, pre- non-open science, mm-hmm. when you experience this, just give me a somewhere to look at, like 20% of people doing this, 60%, like, is it oh. pervasive? It's, 
So the lab I was in, I should clarify that they sure. were great. <laughs> they did not do this. <laughs> okay. But you hear about it a lot, and just I, with collaborators, they'd be really scared about getting scooped. So they'd hide their data as much as they could, mm-hmm. or maybe like just play around with the p-value, <laughs> so right. just see what you can do to make that results show the story that you want, where the data itself doesn't really do that. So there was um, there's a really interesting. Sounds study. like a statistician. That's a yeah, a little bit. <laughs> that's a joke. So, that's but, important though, because in history you have like Einstein, who's remembered, but then the person who actually had some theory of relativity before Einstein doesn't sure. get the same credit because. Yeah. Einstein was the one who well, was... Well, lots of times you'll have that, like, dual invention. Right, or, right. Yeah. And one person's I mean, just, like, the one who gets all the credit. So it makes sense to be secretive to some degree with your data and your Yeah, it does. Research. Secretive's okay, but tweaking it to fit your... Okay, that's where yeah. results. And Let's not you, go there. Right. I think um, one of my former colleagues, Greg Wilson, he mined a lot of... Uh, a lot of these research papers and looked at what the p-value was and there was a huge spike like right before what we consider significant in, in okay. research. So like a lot of people just got their p-value just right below that, the, the statistical significance. Yeah. What's the p-value again? It's the statistical significance of the results. So it okay. shows that there is like correlation there. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. It's key. Yeah. It's p. It's, it's p. Okay. <laughs> so you said, okay, p key. Op- open... Yeah, so that's when I got really interested in open source, because um, my lab was really writing open source software for these researchers. Um, but then open science generally, I was like, yeah, this is really important. <laughs> a lot of people are really scared about, like, there's something wrong with the research system if a lot of people are just hiding their data. So then Mozilla Science started. Uh, okay. So that's why I joined Mozilla. And since then, my role has shifted to be less about just the open science. I still do quite a bit of open science, um, okay. but that working open across everyone. Tell us a little bit about Mozilla, because... You know, intellectually, I know Mozilla does a lot of stuff. Yeah. But <laughs> instinctively, I think Firefox, and then that's pretty much where my brain stops, doing. right? Yeah, yeah. So tell us, I mean, Mozilla Science is not a thing I've heard of. Tell us some of the other stuff Mozilla's into and how the, your work affects, the, you know, everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at Mozilla, our mission is to ensure that the Internet is a global public resource, open and accessible to all. And we do that through products like Firefox, um, but also through movement building and working with different communities. So Mozilla Science is one of those communities um, that they're working with, but also like um, like with government, civic tech, working with that. And a lot of it's, um, yeah, we've released this internet health report. So it's like what is hurting and what's helping the internet. So mm. we look at things like how open is the internet, how private and secure are we on there, how inclusive is it, what's web literacy like, who can actually make a change on the line. Um, yeah, so we do a lot of things like that. And then there's the Mozilla Festival every year. Um, in London, in Moz October, Mozfest. That's right. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's where it's at. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. So it's all of that put together. So all these different communities who really rely on the Internet and really want to make sure that it stays healthy. And they're there yeah. to really, yeah, meet about that, brainstorm, make cool things. It's we- sort of the underpinning of the Mozilla brand, too, to be open. Yeah. Oh, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of like on the core mission of Mozilla at large. Yeah, and I think, like, our with our main goal is like internet health but then how we're doing that is through openness so either building products openly or by like rallying the community to build something open yeah what does your day-to-day look like when you're trying to educate you know lead mentor Mm -hmm. build a movement what does that look like in a tactical (laughs) sense it's a lot of uh emails (laughs) (laughs) very hard work a lot of emails a lot lot of emails emails. but also a lot of video calls i spend a lot of time just meeting with people online a lot of big conference calls for trainings so what kind of people are you meeting with? Um, all sorts of people. So with our, I run Mozilla Open Leaders, which is this uh, mentorship and training program around how to work open. So people come with their projects, whether it's an open science project or an open data project or some civic tech project. Hmm. Um, 
And so I meet with a lot of people who are running cool open projects from all these different fields and just tell them, like, this is how you work open properly. Not that I know everything, but... So what, what does that look like, uh, working open properly? Yeah, working open properly. I think a lot of people forget to, like, strategize around how to work open or plan to do this. So a big thing at Mozilla now is open by design instead of open by default. So I think because open is, like, part of our DNA at Mozilla, we often forget why we do things openly. So by default, everything's just online, but then it's not, it's not making that impact we really want. So... I think if you're doing open well, at the beginning you're thinking about like who do you want to work with? How are you going to engage them? Like what's the value exchange going to be? How are you going to bring them from being a user to a contributor to maybe a project lead? Like thinking all these pathways through huh. um, and then writing the documentation to make sure that they know how that all happens and providing like that support to people and mentoring them as mm. they go through your project. So that's a broad overview. It's, it's different for each project what that yeah. looks like. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. So take one of your projects, mm-hmm. maybe even, you know, the open leadership project. I'm not sure how your projects break out. Yeah, and yeah. then describe to us how that was designed to have a specific goal or a specific mm-hmm. end in, in mind. Yeah, so this work started when I was part of Mozilla Science. And what we were trying to do, we just put a bunch of developers who are interested in science and put them in touch with a bunch of scientists. Um, but then we realized that scientists weren't great at working open. Yeah. <laughs> they'd, uh, they'd have their project and they're like, oh, you, I don't need you yet. <laughs> just wait. Um, so it's probably like cultural, not clashes, but just differences. Yeah. So then I started writing these little guidebooks. It's like, here's how you can open your work a little bit so that you can benefit from all these developers that want to help you, that care about science. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we realized like these guides are really helpful for just anyone running an open project. Uh, so we started doing that. Um, also... Um, my husband, at the time, he was running this uh, startup accelerator in Toronto. And the way he modeled it, it was like a three-month thing. Um, and I just took a lot of the ideas there. So we start, yeah, we meet with them at the beginning. We have them set goals and figure out what they're going to do over those three months. We work with them regularly. And, uh, yes, yeah, so it was modeled after Startup Accelerator, this mentorship program. Okay. Is it working? I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And what really excites me about this program is that, um, so I, I designed it so that people can come back and become a mentor after they've gone through it. So about 50% of the people that have gone through have come back and mentored other people. So we're showing people how to work open in a way that they get really excited and want to help other people do that. Okay. So that's what I think is the essence of like a building a movement. Building a movement. Yeah. So is I a lot of this inside Mozilla world. only or is it sort of like Mozilla and external? Um, the people in the program are from everywhere. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's Mozilla only. It's running it right now, but I'm trying to... Um, actually, we're partnering with a few people so that they can run their own versions in their organization or maybe in their language or in their city. Uh, so we've done that a few times, but I'm trying to make it more forkable so that people can just run this program wherever they are. Huh. So is that like a face-to-face thing, or is it, you mentioned you do a lot of video calls and a lot of yeah, yeah. <laughs> emails and stuff. Is any of this distributed, or is it all sort of co-located? Um, so the first iteration we had was a two-day event where we ran the training at the beginning, and then we just followed up with mentorship afterwards. Late, then we realized, oh, we could do this all online, where we just meet every week online, do a little bit of training, then alternate weeks you do one-on-one mentorship. You mentioned guides as well. Are those guides open at all or available to people? Yes. There's the Open Leadership Training Series. It's on GitHub. You can edit it. You can remix it. Yeah. Nice. How weird would it be if she said no to that question? <laughs> it would have been really weird. Been like, very uh, like actually, they're proprietary <laughs> offline. They're copyright locked in a vault. Purchase them. <laughs> Underneath the pillow. No, no PRs here. <laughs> so what do you 
what are you doing here at OSCON? What are you trying to talk about? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously open stuff, but is there specific because this is about open source specifically, yeah, yeah. so we're software people. Yeah. What's your message here and who are you talking to? Yeah, this is my first year at OSCON. It's really exciting. Um, I gave a talk yesterday in Open as a Competitive Advantage, and that was really about like that open by design yeah. and instead of open by default. So like, what choices can you make um, to be really strategic about what you open? And like, are you opening something for... Um, yeah, for, to increase your adoption by giving away for free, or are you trying to lower your operating costs? Or right. are you, yeah, there's different reasons why you can open different parts. Looking at those reasons, is there ever a, a decision a workflow wherein it's like, you know what, don't open this? Or is, it, or is yeah. open always better, in your opinion? Um, I don't think open's always better. And I've worked, some of the people through the mentorship program, they're a bigger organization. And just telling them to make everything open is a little bit too much. So, like, how can you start? Like, what are little things you can do to start opening things up? And it might be just, like, getting ideas from your community. Like, what features do you want us to do? And let the people suggest them and vote on it. I think LIGO does something like that, where yeah. you can suggest, like, which kit you want. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a tiny way you can open it. Get people involved. When you say advantage, it makes me think of like a growth hack of some sort. Like you're doing it as a hack to an alternative way, and somehow you're going to get better benefits from, you know, as an advantage, so to speak. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Like sorry, the advantages missed... of being open? Yeah, yeah. The, the hacking of it, like the growth hack part of it, like how you would be better off that way, the growth potential. Yeah, and I think um, there's a lot of advantages to working open, but I think by working open and letting people see what you're doing and inviting people to join in, um, you can... Well, with science, you get the best ideas, you get the best innovation that way, and it's not just one person trying to figure out how to solve this problem, but you have hundreds of people trying to solve it. Yeah. Um, and Plus then, you get trust, like de facto trust, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And people see how it was done, and if they can see all the data there, then they know that you didn't tweak it and that you didn't hide right. parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that's a huge advantage. Yeah, and just that buy-in from that community, also that goodwill is usually pretty nice. We see that with a lot of infrastructure companies mm-hmm. that are open source, but they're also you know startups or small businesses or big businesses. And we always ask them like, why are you open source? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the point for you, or where are you coming from? And a lot of the times, it's about trust mm-hmm. because they just think this is table stakes. We run a thing where you expect. Like you don't have to trust that we're doing things with your stuff. You can see what we're doing with your stuff, mm-hmm. and so you know, yeah. on the data side, it makes a lot of sense. Of like, hey, my research is legit. Here's everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Or if there's a problem, like there it is in line 37. Help me fix it. Um, with software companies, a lot of times the advantage is we don't have to prove to anybody that we're trustworthy. I mean, mm-hmm. You still have to to a certain degree, but here's our proof right here. It's right there out in the open. Just another example. Mm-hmm. Or even just listening to people. I think that's an interaction, like a nice open interaction that can build trust, even if they can't see, or if they already trust what you're building. Yeah. But knowing that you're hearing what they're saying and making changes, I think that's really important. In regards to building a movement or starting a movement, a lot mm-hmm. of people, and I've had this in the past, open source things or you know write openly or publish openly yeah. into the void. <laughs> mm, yeah. And so they want interaction, they want other people's ideas they want contributors they want all these things and yet there is a disconnect Mm -hmm. or sometimes there's just too much noise and you can't get your voice heard so with mozilla you guys have a loud voice in the community and so it's it's probably established that you know these things are going to have interaction and stuff but if you're just starting from square one Mm -hmm. do you have to advise people on like how to build that movement how to kickstart the interactions yeah 
Definitely. And I think something that people forget to do is really have that concise mission or concise vision around what mm. they're doing so people can understand it right away. Um, we do try to amplify, like you said, we do have a, a big platform. So we do yes. try to amplify everyone that we trust or that's coming through the program uh, to help give them that head start. But if they're not, like if they have a really confusing mission statement that people don't get, it's going to be a bit harder for them to to gather that community. So we try to we do a couple exercises around like solidifying what you're doing and your messaging there. But then also once you start getting a couple people interested, how do you keep that momentum going? How do you follow up with them and really find out why they came so that you can give them the kind of value that they want coming out of this? Is it do they come because they want to learn JavaScript? Yeah. Then help make that a great learning experience for them. Or mm -hmm. did they come because they really want to help take down the browser monopoly, then really like give them that opportunity. Right. Back to Firefox. Yeah. That's that's a movement right there. Yeah, yeah. You're also part of the Journal for Open Source, is that right? Yeah, the Journal for Open Source Software. What is that about? Yeah, so it's um, in academia, a lot of times if you write open source software, write software for science, uh, you can't cite the software directly. You have to write a paper about your software, get that published, and then you get more citations, and then you can make the argument that you need more funding for your software. And it's it's a little roundabout. So the Journal for Open Source Software, it makes it really easy for you to publish a paper on your software. So they just take the README. Um, and then we have a, re a review process, which is similar to um, just like, are you following best practices with your software? And then it generates this paper that's all online, and it mints it with a DOI, this digital object identifier, so that people can cite it in real in their real academic papers. Hmm. And then you can say, oh, look, these 10 people published about my paper, used my paper, or not my paper, my software, to do their analysis. Um, I need funding. So it makes it a little easier to make software and science more sustainable. Huh. And it's a little hack between, because right now you can't cite software directly. So it's just like Well, that's what I'm saying. It almost step. seems like it'd be more useful for papers. Yeah. <laughs> but it's for software, just... open source software. Yeah. yeah, so I think you you can sort of sort cite software directly, but not everyone thinks that's a good idea. <laughs> We're sort trying to make that upon. happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So is that like a you say it's a hack, kind of a hack? Is it a first step or is it an end goal? Like, is, the, is it seems like the kind of thing that would be generally useful for all sorts of research and yeah, yeah. I think the end goal would be you can just cite software directly. So you can get a DOI for your software. Okay. Um, so you could cite it. Um, just a lot of publications out there are like that's not a real paper. <laughs> yeah. So this is just a way to make software a little bit more visible. Okay. Yeah. So citations are super important in academia. Yes. yes. That is how that's you like move your, forward in your career. That's yeah. your street cred right there. I've been cited. They agree. It's a concur. What's that? It's a, it's a concur. I've been cited. Yeah. yeah, like I concur. I agree with you. Although it's, sometimes people cite it because they disagree. disagree. Okay. It's more like yeah. uh, notoriety like, than yeah. it is. Like we used your research. Right. Yeah. It's similar like PageRank, how it works with links. Okay. You know, like yeah. the more times you're linked, the more influential yeah, you sense. are. Sometimes they're agreeing, disagreeing, but you're obviously you're a part of that conversation. <laughs> yeah, I didn't consider the disagree part of that, but <laughs> but yeah, definitely. It just shows that you have some influence of whether it's negative or positive is yeah. to be seen by the reader. It's like how many stars do you have on GitHub? No, let's, right. not, let's not start there. Um, yeah, Arfin Smith started the Journal of Open Source Software. I hope I did a good job explaining what that was. I'm sorry, Arfin. <laughs> I think you did. I got I did, it. But I, yeah. we do know Arvin. We've had him on uh, okay. yeah. RFC. So I was somewhat familiar with this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't. Not at all. Brand new today. That's where he works now. I didn't know that either. Learn something new Miss you, day. bro. Good to see you. <laughs> What's up, Marvin? Shout out. <laughs> Last time I talked to him, he was traveling everywhere. He was like a he vagabond with a, a family. Lot. We yeah. interviewed him from a 
Was it a bus? No, it was RV. A, it was an RV. Parked outside of a Starbucks in Canada. That's somewhere. right. That's it was not pretty surprising. wild. That was yeah. fun. It was pretty wild. <laughs> cool, Abby. Anything else you like to talk about? Um, I think that was yeah. That was good. <laughs> Nothing Adam, comes any, to mind. Anything else? Nothing for me. All right. Well, thanks for all the work that you're doing. It's a real pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Abby. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of The Changelog on location at OzCon. Thank you to our sponsors, Rollbar, DigitalOcean, Algolia, and GoCD. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more about them at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers at the Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is edited and mixed by me, Tim Smith. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more shows just like this one on changelog.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Mm-hmm.